welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Well, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. This episode is with one of you guys. Our guest is a listener, and we hear his story about becoming an elk killer after being a, just call it, a bow hiker, and not having success actually punching a tag for quite a few years. So it's the journey that he went through, the lessons that he learned, and ultimately what made a difference in allowing him to go from just being a hunter to actually filling that tag on an elk for the first time. It's a great story. We cover not only the tactics and the tips and the things that helped them, but a lot of stuff that you guys can relate to in terms of limited time to hunt, dealing with family, and all sorts of related issues. Before we get into that, I wanted to mention a couple things. In this show, uh, the guest talks about the elk nut. And we've done a few episodes with Paul Medell, the elk nut. They always go over well, but in case you're new to the podcast, I just wanted to mention he's been on the podcast in episode 36, 93, and 138. And those are great resources to go back to to learn more about elk calling and elk hunting and just elk behavior in general. Another fantastic resource in terms of elk hunting that we haven't mentioned in quite a while is the University of Elk Hunting. It's an online course. It's written material, video material, and it's from Corey Jacobson. This is the single most comprehensive resource on elk hunting out there, and we highly recommend it. You guys can check that out at elk101.com and just go to the online course once you're on that website. If you use the coupon code EXO20, EXO20, XO20, you'll save $20 on that course. And personally and legitimately, I think it's worth every penny um, for elk hunters. It covers literally A to Z on where to hunt, how to hunt, what happens after the hunt, pretty much everything you can imagine. All right. Also, just wanted to give a shout out to Farside Bound for the iTunes review. And just remind listeners, we love to hear your feedback. So whether that's an iTunes review or you can contact us directly by email to podcast at exomontgear.com. We would love to hear from you. And we occasionally just pick winners like we did this time with Farside Bound. And we'll send you guys some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Backcountry podcast swag. Last one, tight spot and ripcord. You have a chance to win a tight spot quiver of your choice and a ripcord arrow rest of your choice this month. Just a few days left from when this episode's going out in March of 2019. So go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast and look for that giveaway link. And in case you miss it, there will be another giveaway next month. So all throughout 2019, we're doing a new giveaway every month with some of our friends and brands that we use and personally trust and believe in. Again, this month, tight spot quivers and ripcord arrow rests. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Let's dive right into this episode with Trevor White. Well, Trevor, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and uh, I'm excited. Yeah, thank you. 
just to give listeners context, you know, we normally have folks kind of introduce themselves to a little bit of background and story, just so the listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit. To kick that off, I have a question. Uh, you mentioned you started bow hunting because of, because of the FBI Academy at Quantico, which is unique. So tell us about that story. Well, it it starts before that, but um, I'll lead up to it. So essentially, I grew up in a non-hunting family. Um, my mom grew up in Wisconsin and her family hunted. My dad grew up in New York and did not hunt. And they moved out west uh, to Washington uh, for work. And I grew up with no guns in the household um, and no um, no mentorship or motivation to hunt. It was all derived uh, myself. And um, I remember the very first time I, I wanted to get my hunter's education card. And I think I got that at like age 12 um, and primarily duck hunted. Uh, we'd jump shoot ponds and, and areas in the scablands in, in eastern Washington and I never did any other hunting and I borrowed a shotgun to, con- you know, do that. I don't think, I think I'd have got a shotgun for my 18th birthday when it was legal. And, uh, that's really the only gun I owned until I became a police officer. Um, when through my, my law enforcement career, I ended up going to the FBI national Academy, which is a, is a three month training back in Quantico for, um, law enforcement executives around the world. And my roommate happened to be a uh, captain from uh, Dallas, a small town near Dallas. And he's a big time bow hunter. Um, and there are horror stories about having roommates at, at National Academy that, you know, didn't get along or, you know, you have a bunch of type A personalities. I mean, we all know cops and, and first responders are, are kind of get it done type people. And sometimes when you get a lot of get it done type people, in small rooms, it sometimes doesn't go well. But uh, anyway, we hit it off. And uh, for the next 10 and a half weeks, we talked about hunting. And he got me completely just immersed in archery hunting. And he's from Texas, like I said, and uh, primarily a bow hunter, you know, dealing with leases and everything that they do down in Texas. Um, We had such a good connection that we decided we were going to, you know, kind of maintain our friendship by trying to hunt once a year together. And in 2013, uh, he arranged um, a hunt on some private ground, actually down near Tombstone Outfitters in um, Missouri. And I absolutely had a blast. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. I bought a bow. I got a a year-old bow for, you know, next to nothing compared to what uh, the new ones were costing. And got it set up not knowing anything that I was doing. Um, it was supposed to be cold. We were hunting the rut. And so I didn't have any legitimate, you know, big game hunting gear. So I actually took a lot of my old duck hunting gear because I knew I was going to be cold. So I'm in a duck hunting jacket. Uh, the only thing I didn't wear in the stand was my waders um, and had an absolute blast uh, hunting with him and, and one of his buddies from college. So anyway, that progressed into an absolute, um, I would almost call it an obsession um, and trying to learn about big game hunting where I'm from, which is the Mecca, I would say, um, of big and big game hunting out West here and, uh, <laughs> mistakes and, um, repeated mistakes and trying to, to capture as much information as possible. And it took me, you know, five years to put an arrow in my first bull. So, 
You had some success early on with that whitetail hunt, right? Um, well, I wouldn't say early on. Um, we, I hunted 13, um, and I didn't even draw my bow at that time. Hunted uh, 14 in another location on some private ground with a uh, kind of a friend of a friend that, that hooked us up with um, a, uh, a retired Missouri State trooper who had a farmer buddy that let us hunt his property. A long story. I, I won't get into that, but great people. Uh, Mac Prophet and uh, Dwight Heisman are just fantastic dudes. Anyway, um, third, hunted 14 there, didn't see many deer, still didn't really know what I was doing. And, you know, when you're tree stand hunting, my buddy Chad from Texas is off in his area where he scouted and wants to be. And I'm kind of like, okay, I'm going to go over here. And I really still don't, don't know what I'm doing, but taking tips and guide uh, guidelines from those guys. Um, because the drive from Washington to Missouri is so long, um, the first year I flew, I didn't have enough equipment. But the next year I realized I'm, I'm, I love the outdoors. I've been a, I worked in a backpacking store when I was in college. My wife and I backpacked a ton before we had kids. And so I had a bunch of good equipment that would make, um, camping in Missouri easy. So we drove, um, my buddy, Chris from Spokane, who's a, a childhood friend. We've known each other since we we're five. Um, he and I drove to Missouri that second year and, uh, 14 didn't kill anything. 15. I actually drew my bow, but didn't shoot. Cause I wasn't absolutely sure. Cause of the, 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 the time of night and, I could only see three and it was a, a four, you know, four point restriction area. Um, and then in 16, we took a year off, I think. And in 16, uh, I killed my first big game animal with a bow ever. Um, so it was exciting. And, um, he was a messed up white tail. He had some sort of left side defect that was still counted out as a, a five point on that side. Um, but, uh, and his right side was all jacked up from fighting. He'd lost two tines and, I didn't know what I was doing, but was trying to uh, grunt, you know, learning, learning grunts. And, and so I tried a grunt sequence and he comes up over this hill out of this draw where there had been a fight earlier in the day and he's got crap hanging from his antlers and he walks right into 17 yards and I stuck him and he, uh, he almost acted like, like he didn't know what happened. He kind of ran down about 25 yards and looked back from where I, where I arrowed him and like, what was that? And then you could see him kind of getting tipsy. And he takes off running because something's not right. And he piles up not even, you know, 15, 20 seconds after I shot him. And I was, um, I was super happy that it was a, a clean and ethical kill. And for my first one, I couldn't be happier. And, and I feel fortunate. Yeah, that's awesome. So you you start taking these trips and, you know, it, it's so funny to hear, you know, coming from Washington to Missouri, where a lot of guys are coming from Midwest to go out West and those are their first big trips and out of state adventures and time away from the family. And, you know, the family topic, something we've been kind of thinking about and talking about recently on the podcast. I'm just curious, as you kind of got into this later in life, how did your wife perceive this? How, how did that whole thing go as you start taking out-of-state trips or taking time away even in your home state to hunt elk and all that transition? Well, uh, you know, honestly, um, it's probably the, the single biggest challenge and, and rightfully so. Um, she's never known me to be anything but a duck hunter, you know, and duck hunting is getting up early in the morning and heading out to the sloughs near here and, and running the dog and, and, and back by breakfast or, you know, late morning type thing sometimes. Um, and, she grew up in a hunting family, so she knows exactly what, you know, what I'm, what entails all the stuff we're doing, but her hunting family was always, um, 
they'd, they'd get pulled out of school and grade school and they'd head over to Eastern Oregon. She grew up in Western Oregon and they would hunt there for a week to 10 days and, you know, all her immediate family would be there. So she's got a lot of experience with it. But the challenge was, is that starting late in life for me, uh, and for those that aren't familiar with Washington, Washington has a point system that uh, is not is not equitable to a new hunter. Um, you know, if you don't have enough points, you're not going to be hunting, you know, the animals that I can hunt over the counter in other states. And, you know, uh, bulls are a protected class in, in eastern Washington. They walk around like like they're not going to ever get hurt because they're really never they're not really hunted. I mean, they probably have hunter presence and, and deal with hunters and stuff, but hunters are Eastern Washington, unless you got the coveted tag, you know, they're hunting for cows or spikes and spikes are like unicorns. Um, it's, 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 it's super challenging. So, um, I immediately, um, that creates an issue back to what we're talking about with the wife is that I'm also, I'm automatically leaving town. I'm leaving, you know, at least a few hours away to um to go hunting so there's travel in and of itself i'm not just going down to the sloughs and coming back so anyway you know we are super active as as a young couple we've known each other since 91 um i have a 15 year old and a 12 year old daughter that are right now fully immersed in club volleyball after school volleyball was done so we are extremely active busy and to add in a becoming a new hunter and then having the type A personality that I do and the the desire to be successful at something or just have fun. I mean, for me, uh, everybody joked, and including me, about being a bow hiker. And bow hiking for me was was kind of like backpacking with a purpose. And I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, but I still wanted to punch a tag and put that elk meat in the freezer because that's the best meat that I, you know, best organic and good stuff. But, um, so back to the challenges with my wife, she, she really took one for the team, so to speak, because the letting me go do this was not only hunting for, you know, 10 or 15 days in, in September, if I got that many, but it was also, um, all the scouting trips, which were equally probably more, I did more scouting than I did hunting. Um, especially driving, you know, again, three hours minimum to where I, uh, first started hunting in North Idaho. Um, you know, coordinating with my buddy, Chris from Spokane, um, meeting up there, get into the back country and you covering as much ground as you can to try and figure out what you're doing and, and, you know, where elk sign might be looking for old rubs. Um, so again, it, it just, every time I leave town, my wife is, is fully in charge of two extremely busy girls. Um, and we don't have family in town. I mean, we, neither one of us are from the tri cities, uh, where, where we live now. And, um, so we don't have a lot of resources to be able to, you know, at a whim drop and go do something and, and have our kids covered. So it's been super challenging. And she has been, um, I think this year was the biggest year, uh, for her because I finally, you know, brought home a couple hundred pounds of elk and, uh, we typically use her mother, uh, uh, has cows and we typically, you know, do the grass fed beef thing, trying to do things healthy. Um, we owned a CrossFit gym. We started the first CrossFit gym in Tricer in, in Kennewick rather, um, back in 2010 or 2000. Yeah. 2010. Um, 
and uh, you know that that comes with you know CrossFit people are, are about fitness and 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 fueling your body the right way. So this elk uh, was a big deal for her, and I think we're making that progression. Uh, she did tell me this year because uh, I went to Missouri just a couple weeks ago, probably about the same time you were in Missouri, Mark. And um, she told me she goes, you know. <laughs> And she was partially joking, but, you know, I think there's all truth. There's some truth and sarcasm. And she says, if you go to Missouri next year during this season, this time of the season, because my daughter was playing at state playoffs and then going to the state tournament for her high school team. And uh, she she goes, if you do this next year, I think we're going to get a divorce. <laughs> and and, and uh, I didn't even laugh because I knew that, okay, it's, this is, you know, I'm going to tread lightly here. And, and I agree with her. I mean, if my daughter this year had been, you know, she's a sophomore, and if she had been a starter and played uh, a ton, um, I wouldn't have been going to Missouri because I'd have been watching her. Yeah. Uh, and that that may change next year with, you know, some seniors graduating. So my next year, I already prepped my buddy Chad from Texas that uh, Missouri may not happen next year. And he already started formulating a plan on how we could hunt earlier. And then we had an argument about, well, how are we going to hunt earlier if we can't even find the deer during the rut? How are we going <laughs> to how are we going to, you know, figure out where they're at pre-rut? Yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, but fortunately, um, Chad comes up here. Uh, so part of the rotation for us is that every other year he comes up and practices flatlander skills in, in North Idaho. And, uh, we expose him to the steep and deep and make fun of him because he, uh, he hates blowdowns and, uh, he hates some of the crap that we deal with in North Idaho. That's just super challenging. Yeah. And there's a few things in there that that are just good reminders. One is, you know, as we've been kind of thinking about talking about the family issues, the spouse issues, and kind of relating the time, um, you tied it into bringing that meat home. And I don't know, like, that's a point that's occurred to me, and that's something my wife and I talk about. But for the guys who are kind of, you know, kind of trying to look to win their wife over, um, if they can kind of approach that health angle um, on that um you know, that's important. Like that's important to kind of keep in mind. Obviously that puts pressure on you as a hunter to actually bring the meat home. Um, but yeah, I think that's an interesting point how you talked about your wife really sees the value in and having that couple hundred pounds of uh, lean wild game now. Yeah. And you know, when, um, when you do bring something like that home and you look at the statistics that, that, that the nutritional values of elk and venison, um, you know, and she grew up eating venison. So, uh, this elk that I got, she was excited about. And it's, it's been, we've, we eaten all the sirloins already. Um, I've got, I'm saving some pieces for Christmas. Um, we just made a roast and I screwed that up horribly. Um, I forgot <laughs> that, you know, I didn't think about, uh, elk being so low in fat. So I made a roast like I'm used to making roasts and it turned out it still tasted good, but you know, a dry roast is not fun. right. Yeah. And I, you know, I cooked it, the vegetables should have gone in first and the meat should have gone in last. Anyway, it was just a, it was a mess, <laughs> but I still ate it jerky. all. Yeah, exactly. It's still in the fridge. We made it uh, Sunday and I've been taking it to lunch every day and I think I'm the only one eating it. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Yeah, I mean, the other thing you mentioned too is just about your daughter is so important to keep in mind. She's only going to have what a couple years to be playing at that level. And uh, yeah, I mean to miss, to miss that is certainly sacrifice and hunting will be there, you know, when she's graduated and when she's done playing at that level. So it, it is important to look at all those opportunities and maybe even for a season, give up part yeah, of the hunting season. 
Yep. And that's, that's, a uh, you know, as a parent, um, and, and the way I feel that's an absolute responsibility for someone like me. And, and I am fully involved with our kids play multiple sports. And, and my oldest is just getting to that point where she has to almost because of the, uh, because of the team she's playing on and the amount of travel that she does, she can't, she can't play other sports. So, but my youngest is still doing it. And my youngest wants to start hunting. Um, she's gone with me now several times. Um, did a muzzleloader hunt, uh, and in December of 17, cause I didn't fill a tag in 17 either. Um, and, uh, we went in and got into some serious snow and snowed all night on us. And she absolutely had a blast. She was such a trooper. Um, it got to the point where I knew that there were no elk in that area. So I let her play with, uh, the, the hand calls and she, you know, was, she ended up calling a coyote in which was kind of crazy. Um, and she didn't realize the gravity of uh, what she was doing, I think, until she, we cut these coyote tracks and she's like, Oh, I want to follow them. And so we follow them back and it basically comes in back behind our camp, right above looking right down on where our tent was underneath the cedar tree that had no snow underneath it. And, uh, she's like, do you think I called that in dad? And I said, absolutely. I go, those are fresh tracks. Do you see any other tracks around this morning? She's like, Nope. She's like, well, that's cool. And she goes, do you think it would have eaten us? You know, and at the time she was, I think she was 11 and I said, no, honey, coyotes, um, probably don't have a good chance of doing that, but there are wolves up here. And I explained the whole kind of the hierarchy of uh, predators in that area. And I think that opened her eyes pretty significantly. So, but she's ready to hunt. Yeah. What, what did you do to, uh, did you leave it pretty open-ended for the, for your daughters to hunt or did you kind of push them towards it or, you know, I've got a daughter myself who's two, but you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that she'll want to backpack and hunt with me later on, but I'm not sure how to approach that. You know, um, yeah, I think, oh man, that's a great question. I got to think about that for a second because I don't remember their first exposure to hunting. Um, I didn't duck hunt while, uh, w- except when they were really young and that I never took them with me then, but, um, I did hunt mule deer locally here. And there were a couple of mornings where they didn't have school um, and I took them mule deer hunting with me and they just kind of went along with me and it was kind of a, a still hunt type thing, which really, when you got kids that age, isn't still hunting. <laughs> um, there's nothing still about it. And I still Emerson, uh, my youngest is, you know, you get her to try and use an inside whisper voice and it just, she gets excited and it doesn't happen. I think we've all had that experience or at least know someone that has with their kids and uh, you know, you love the excitement and, and it builds the passion. But I think to answer your question, I really I think they saw me, uh, we're a really close family and we do a lot of stuff. We just focus around the kids. I mean, my life and my wife's life right now are, are our kids. And so I think their exposure was probably just wanting to be with me, uh, mm-hmm. and, and being used to being with me. And so even though it was a new experience, it really wasn't any different than what we've done before. It, you know, dad's got a, an adult league basketball game. Let's go girls. And, you know, of course they come and play on the side basket and that kind of stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. so it's not really much different than that other than what they're seeing and, um, the understanding of, of why the wind matters. And I think it really opens their eyes. You know, we back to raising kids and, and getting them exposed to this is getting them out of their phones and out of their electronics long enough for them to see what the real world looks like and not through the eyes of a four and a half inch iPhone screen. Yeah. And, and my girls, you know, um, they, 
we do trips into the back country and I absolutely love watching them in a natural environment. Um, you know, I, I capitalize, I tell my wife, hey, I'm taking the kids backpacking. And uh, <laughs> really what it is, is it's a scouting trip. And she, mm-hmm. she knows that. Um, and, and in fact, my mom went on one of the trips, she's 72 and she went on one of these trips where we did 13 miles, uh, in North Idaho and she was a trooper. Holy cow. Uh, Go grandma. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. She killed it. And, um, she fell once she, she crashed and burned at, on the way out the last day. And it was a, you know, kind of a footing issue or something like that coming through some area and some steep rocky stuff. And she kind of tucked and rolled and didn't look 72 at all. And she got up and walked it off. And I just, anyway, any excuse to get into the back country, uh, is an excuse for me to try and do some scouting for new areas. And, uh, I actually like that because, you know, typically, I went to college on the west side of Washington, and all the hiking over there is just um, – there's a lot of people, and the, mm-hmm. and the paths are pretty well-worn. And getting farther east in Washington, uh, there's less people, but there's also – if you really are looking for hunting area, you're not going to see anybody, uh, especially in June and July when there's still a little bit of snow on the ground. Um, so I think, um, I think the biggest thing, Steve, would be – I think that your kids are just going to recognize it's important to you and they're going to be interested. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. What you said is so cool about if they simply want to be with you, like if, if they enjoy spending time with you, they're naturally going to have some interest in doing what you're doing. And I think that's such a key point is just focus on being a really good dad, like focus on doing their thing too. just make it a, a relationship where they want to be with you and then boom if you're if you're going on a trip man they're gonna want to be with you at some level that's cool yep and that that, that's exactly i think you paraphrase that perfectly so i i'd love to hear more about you know you started bow hunting whitetails first big game animal whitetails you transitioned to elk um I, i know at one point you had told me you thought you could go into the forest and quote unquote catch an elk like you did bad guys on the street. So I'd just love to hear about some of your first elk hunting experiences, your mindset, like what you thought it was going to be like. And then, you know, over several years, how your, your mindset, your approach, your tactics changed, um, that ultimately led to success. But where were you in the beginning with elk hunting? When I was in the beginning, um, you know, basically asked questions. I knew I wanted to elk hunt because I wanted to expand after that first whitetail season, which was November of 13 for me in Missouri. I did, and and I did a little bit of hunting, uh, mule deer hunting with some local friends. Um, didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, I can think of times where I didn't understand why the deer ran away. I mean, I was that naive at certain things. Um, and it was obviously the deer winded me. I mean, I just, it was, it was almost like baby steps, um, didn't even describe where I was at. Um, you know, bad guys, uh, being a law enforcement officer, you know, they don't have that, that nose. Um, so all I got to do is think about human, you know, human thought process and path of least resistance, you know, from a fleeing criminal. And a lot of times it puts me in a good position to have a, an opportunity and, uh, pretty successful as a you know patrol officer and stuff uh, at catching bad guys um but you get into the elk woods and and oh my gosh um i i went into it a little bit uh thinking that i was going to be okay at it and <laughs> i remember getting dropped off so a, a co-worker of mine said hey i'll hook you up with my son he's he's um 
he's working and living up in North Idaho and I'll have him kind of get you in some areas where we think elk are and made a really great friendship with a kid named Jesse out of North Idaho. And, um, he dropped me off the very first time I elk hunted, uh, Chad actually came, uh, Chad flew up. It was 2014, uh, you know, September, I think we had, you know, Chad flew up and we had like nine days and, uh, Chad gets there, we drive up. Jesse says, Hey, I can't go hunting with you guys tonight. Uh, I got to, you know, I, they they were cutting hay at the time and he goes, but I'll drop you off at a, a spot and, and pick you up on the other side of the mountain. It's like, Oh, okay. Sounds good. So he drops us off at this kind of this trailhead looked like a trailhead from the truck. And he goes, all right, I'll pick you up on the other side of the mountain. And he kind of pints up and over and, and I'm looking at him and I'm like, okay. And it looks like a trailhead, but as soon as you get past the distance you could see from the truck it it basically folded in and tag alders and and all these things there's no trail it was basically an old fire road that's been grown over for 40 years and uh we found ourselves um completely and utterly way outgunned by the forest um but perseverance and and the desire to be you know to have fun and and just cover ground um we did our best, got in there. It would happen to be a drought year. Um, and this is kind of shows how naive I was. We, we, we cut a, um, probably the only running water in several drainages. I mean, there was, we didn't see any water for nine days except for this particular Creek or spring or whatever it was. And it looked like a freeway, uh, going down to the water from this, this, um, this old road that we were trying to walk on. And I immediately recognized, hey, that's elk, and there's a lot of animals coming here to drink water. Cool. I didn't even think anything about, hey, that's probably the best place to hunt right now because the elk have to come here to water. And, you know, we're not going to find them. We didn't have any calls. Um, actually, I take that back. I did have a couple of the, the non-diaphragm uh, style, I think, what are they called? Just uh, the plastic calls, reed calls, or whatever they are. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, and I've used them and stuff and, and pretended to sound like an elk, but didn't ever know the scenario or the situation on when to use it or how to use it. And um, didn't even realize that I could use cow calls to try and elicit a bull call or, you know, a bugle. And um, so we spent the next week trudging around this area looking for elk. Like we were just going to, you know, walk up and go, oh, there's one and do something with it. And where we should have been all along hindsight's always 2020 and that's a lot of my learning mistakes have have been because of mistakes that i did and then later on as i'm you know in university of elk hunting or having conversations or listening your guys's podcast has been huge for me uh to realize like oh man i just realized i screwed that up uh but you 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 file that away and it never becomes a mistake that you repeat again or at least not in the same exact way um so 2014 was, was a lot of bow hiking, uh, and a lot of, um, that basically fueled my fire for elk hunting because when I came out of there, I went, what the heck are you doing? You're wasting time. Uh, you're not being efficient. Uh, it was fun. You know, Chad and I hanging out was a blast. Um, but, um, and seeing the country that we saw and, um, doing the best we could with, with the, with the knowledge we had at the time was still fun. So then, you know, the progression continues where I start in the off season is when I learn the most. Um, I didn't find your guys' podcast until last year. Um, but before that, I, I'd signed up for Corey Jacobson's University Elk Hunting. 
And his elk hunting guide is phenomenal. But at the same time, I took it at face value and and was looking for, you know, the prototypical, the way he describes elk movement and those type of things. Well, that that's different given the the environment that you're you're hunting in, because some of it may not be high elevation and some of it may not be, um, you know, the elk are going to go where they're safe to sleep and where they can get food and, and close proximity to all the things that they need for their life cycle. And that may not necessarily mean that they're bedding on North facing slopes at 10,000 feet and then hiking down several miles to 6,000 feet to feed all night. Um, you know, and I didn't have that type of terrain, uh, where I was at, but that's how I, I attacked it and learned throughout time that, Hey, wait, this is not how it works here. This is what I'm seeing here. And I actually found that the elk were feeding fairly close to where they were, um, where I thought they should be feeding, you know, they were sometimes going up and over a ridge to feed on a South facing slope at night. And which is completely different than what I had learned on the university of elk hunting. But, uh, you know, the other thing that I learned is, is I was not, we were not near aggressive enough. There were so many times where we sat back kind of like whitetail hunting you sit in the stand and you got to wait for the elk to come to you you find a good location and then hopefully the elk come to you or the excuse me the deer come to you and that just doesn't work every time i don't that never worked for me and and i think this year was the first year where i was forced to be aggressive uh by a, a friend that that took me along with him uh this year who's a accomplished elk hunter um and being aggressive and, and kind of the, you know, the born and raised outdoors guys, the cat road shuffle and what Corey says, you know, and I, I've heard it a ton of times from people and guests on your show, you know, you gotta, you gotta find the bull that's willing to play. Um, and so this is really the first year that, that I went in with that attitude and kind of, um, you know, learned, the hard way spending the last five years or four years before this, this last eight, uh, 2018 season, you know, just spinning my wheels and, and recognizing mistake after mistake. Um, but learning from, them, um, and putting it together this year. And it's so important to, to take the knowledge and information you hear about and consider it, but always adapt that to what you're actually seeing and experiencing. That's such an important lesson that I've had to learn. Sounds like you've learned as well. Oh, I mean, you know, it's the probably the biggest lesson is the aggressiveness for me, because in 2017, Chad, Chris and I were in, in North Idaho and we had kind of gone into this timber cut company land, which is a feel free to hunt land. And we come around the corner right at sun, sun up and 124 yards from us is a four by four uh, bull and a cow. And we stopped dead in our tracks. You know, and I point at it and we try and make a game plan right there. We back out a little bit so we can kind of set up a little bit. And as we're doing this, a bull barks at us from probably 40 yards, maybe less. And he's right on our same level. And, and it turns out that we had a whole herd of elk directly north of us with the wind perfect. And when that bull barked at us, not only did it scare the crap out of us because we didn't know he was there, um, but we didn't do anything. I mean, we didn't, you know, now I know that I should have challenged him. And, you know, that may have drawn him right in or we could have set up. I mean, just I just I look back and I just put my hand to my head just in a frustration move right now because I realized that I how many times have I done that where you have that perfect opportunity? And I just, you know, I didn't know I didn't know. And now, um, again, being aggressive 
Um, I have to force myself sometimes rather than to be uh, conservative. You need to be aggressive, especially, you know, statistics on, on, on hunting these animals are so low um, that you got to create your own opportunities almost all the time. You uh, mentioning that bull barking made me think of something you had told me uh, before the show. We were chatting at one point. You had mentioned you thought the elk nut was full of it, <laughs> and he talked about barking <laughs> a fair amount. I would just love to hear. It's it's been so interesting. You know, when we have Paul on the show, they're always uh, incredibly well received. Um, I just, from your perspective, like hearing his uh, strategies and hearing his theories, and then you even saying you thought he was full of it. How yeah. have you experienced some of his ideas in the field? Oh, well, so yeah, I, um, I heard both of his, uh, times with you guys. And after the second one, I was convinced he was, I'm like, this guy is, I mean, it, and it was partially probably because he's so animated, even on, on, you know, just audio, he is super animated. You can tell he's just pumped up to talk about stuff and, and he's super knowledgeable, but I'm listening to the stuff he's saying and I'm super skeptical just, just as a, you know, I'm just skeptical. I'm a cop and, you know, skepticism sometimes is, is how we stay alive. And, um, hearing him the first time and the second time and, and talking about the level of communication and what the animals are saying. And, and then knowing that there, that a lot of times the only thing I can control in a call, I don't know exactly what I'm saying, but I can control the emotion in it. And that, that, that hit home with me, but some of the other stuff with him, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Uh, I listened to, I swear, I think I listened to the second podcast, which would have been, I think you guys had it in August or September of this year. I think it was August. And, um, I listened to that, that second time with him. I think I listened to it three or four times and I still, uh, at, after the fourth time, I'm trying to take all these nuggets of information in, but I'm still in the back of my mind. I'm like, man, this guy's full of it. There's no way. <laughs> There's no way any of this stuff would work, you know, and then the slow play. I'm like, okay, really? <laughs> I, 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 uh, okay. Well, I, I never had any plans to use it, but it was just, again, knowledge in my little toolbox that, that I could use. And it turned out to, it turned out to work. Um, my buddy, Chris and I had, uh, so for this 2018 season, we killed two bulls, uh, in 24 hours. And, um, Chris, uh, still hadn't filled a tag yet. And so he and I were back up in the area hunting a couple of weeks after, um, kind of that opening weekend for us. And the elk had already, uh, grouped up and the bulls were not wanting to come in, uh, to, to bugles that answer you from a distance. But if you got in the same relative area that they were in, they'd shut up. And we were finding that most of the time they were only responding to cow calls and, and trying to keep everybody together as they're moving from, from feed to bed in the mornings and we're trying to get ahead of them. And so anyway, this, this whole week's worth of activity kind of culminates in, we know that we're leaving the next morning and we find this, this meadow where we constantly are seeing and hearing and, and know that there's activity going through this meadow on the way to their beds. And uh, we set up wrong on this meadow. We set up in the evening and had a, had a, an exchange in a different meadow close by, um, a couple nights before and Chris is, you know, basically I'm his caller and he, you know, he's making the decision. He's like, you know what? They're not responding to, to bugles. Let's just sit in, in this meadow area and cow call a bunch. And, um, you know, he's kind of running the show here cause it's his tag to fill. I said, no problem. So we got the wind right. And, uh, he's sitting on one side of the meadow 
and thinking that we can get the bull to come to the other side of the meadow. And, um, you know, that's how we're thinking right now. But in, in honesty, I'll, I'll get back to it later, but we learned that, you know, we set up completely wrong for this. Um, but anyway, we set up, I'm up behind, uh, Chris on the hill, probably hundred feet between hundred feet and hundred yards. And I'm moving around and I'm trying to, you know, sound like a, a, a group of cows and, making some noise and, and trying to draw something in. And we got about an hour of hunting life light left when this, when this begins. And early on we hear, I'm convinced we hear a bull come in across the meadow from us and up on the hillside. So he's probably level with me on the hillside and, um, maybe a hundred yards from Chris, uh, at the bottom, but on the opposite side of this 34 yard wide meadow and up in the trees. I'm convinced I hear it come in and then you hear, you know, the red squirrel or one of the squirrels start making a big ruckus, you know, when, when you climb under their trees or whatever, and, and they, they start chatting to everybody, letting, it's kind of like a, a warning call. I think you guys have probably heard something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so the bull hangs out for a while, uh, silent, don't hear anything. Nothing ever happens, you know, at some point, um, you know, Chris was adamant about being, you know, let's just do cow calls. And so I'm like, okay, cool. About 20 minutes before last light, I hear Siri, that's iPhone Siri, and Chris's phone somehow gets toggled. So I hear Siri say, I'm sorry, I don't have an internet connection right now. You're going to have to ask me that later. (laughs) And I kind of shrugged my shoulders and I went, what the heck? (laughs) Oh, and I go, if that bulls anywhere, if there's anything even in earshot, I mean, it was, I was 150 feet up the hill from him and heard it plain as day. And I'm like, okay, I mean, you might as well bang pots and pans together and, and tell everybody we're here. So I kind of thought to myself, uh, without going back down to Chris to talk to him, I just went, okay, you know, no holds barred here. I'm going to, I'm going to let loose. And I started basically doing the slow play, um, exactly how the elk, well, as close to what I recall the elk nut. And, and I listened to it again four times. So I had a pretty good idea of, of how he ran the slow play and I did it exactly the same. Um, you know, I ran the, 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 not the grunting, but the breathing and the huffing noise, you know, through the tube. So it's like the bull is, and I even did the cow call into bugle type stuff and ran around breaking stuff and trying to sound like I was chasing, you know, which was kind of a whitetail tactic when you say, you know, I'm sure elk sound just bigger when they're chasing cows through the trees, but I was trying to do the best I could to make a bunch of noise and, because Siri had kind of screwed up our hunt, I figured I've got now to try and bring in elk that didn't hear Siri and get them to come in from a distance. And I'm just, just absolutely, I got pitch all over me because I'm beating this tree that had pitch all over it. And, and it's, I'm sticky and I'm sweaty. And I get to a point where I can, I can only now see for the most part, I can only see the, the meadow has light. And I'm up in the trees and it's kind of some old growth. So there's not a lot of uh, sun coming through. And we probably got, man, maybe a few minutes of shooting light left. If, if the bull was standing in the middle of the, in the middle of the open meadow, you, you know, you'd probably be able to see your pins just fine. Um, and I sit down for a second and I'm probably now, oh, the, uh, the last piece of this was um, we had an encounter a couple nights before when we left the meadow, it wasn't, but you know, 150 yards up the, up the draw out of this meadow that this bull came flying in on us and was, you know, just, you could hear he was ticked off and he was screaming at us and, and, and we're like, Whoa. So we try and set up again on that, but we ran out of light. So we thought, well, if that happens again, 
I'm going to, if, if we have nothing happen until the very end of shooting light, I'm going to head uphill and make a bunch of noise like I'm leaving and see if that draws something in so Chris has a shot. Um, so I do that exact thing, and I get to a point where I, I sit down, and I'm just like, geez, I'm tired, I'm sweaty. Um, and I figured, well, Chris will be coming up here any time now. And uh, I hear a noise. And it, I hear like a twig snap and a branch is moving and I'm like, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out where that noise came from. I think I, I knew it came from my, um, my uphill side, which is not where Chris was coming from. Um, and, but, but my brain told me it wasn't, there's no way that was, that had to have been Chris. So I, I'm looking down, trying to see if I can see any movement in the shadows and I hear it again. And I look left and I see nothing but horns and uh coming through the the, they're kind of backlit through the shadows and i'm like are you kidding oh i grab my stuff and i take off on a dead sprint trying to draw this bull uh through chris and i fall and tumble and you know i'm wearing one of the exo packs too the whole time and that the tumble was kind of interesting because it it rolled me good because uh i had some extra weight in the pack and it caused (laughs) me a little extra inertia uh hopped up and and i get down to where chris had uh kind of made a blind and and was sitting there and he is already packing all this stuff up and he's got his back to me and I have to run around this area and basically I grab him by the whatever I could touch and get him to look at me and I kind of do sign language with bullwinkle hands and point up the hill and then take off running as I'm bugling across this across this meadow and up the other side of the hill and I think you know he didn't know at the time what the hell was going on and we we chuckled about it later because nothing ended up happening um I tried to draw the bull in. It got too dark. Uh, he flashed his headlamp at me or something. I can't remember why um, I ended up quitting, but I came back to him and he goes, what the hell was that? And I go, I almost got run over by a bull. And he goes, what? And he goes, I figured something was up. And so I, you know, he re-knocked an arrow was ready, but we just ran out of light. So anyway, we chuckled about it and we're having a conversation, not super loud, but we're, we're talking quietly. And, um, we decide, okay, we're, we're on our way out and Chris goes, Hey, let's go out basically downwind of where that elk came in and go up this trail that, or this little ridge line that he was looking at apparently on his, on his uh, phone. And so we get, we don't even get 50 yards from where we were just having a conversation, the edge of this meadow up this little, this little spine going out uh, back to camp. And this bull, it comes just start bugling and screaming at us. And, and I'm just like, really? used and i'm i'm wanting to cuss and throw stuff at him <laughs> and um you know they just they don't don't play by the rules and and um, i think i mentioned that in my story to you was that they're not playing by the rules that you know Corey and the elk nut always say happen but every bull that we had come in within an opportunity to shoot this season had the wind at his ass every one the wow. one i shot the one i shot came in with the wind at his butt uh the one troy shot uh, the next night same thing um, and then this one was doing the same thing. We had set up for the wind to be, uh, you know, if, if you, it was a left to right. So from my nine o'clock to my three o'clock, the wind was moving and the elk came in from my nine o'clock. That was just, yeah. uh, just perplexing, but Hey, they don't play by the rules. It's better to, you know, to, uh, to, I, that was where I learned generally you need to set up where you have the best opportunity, not, and, and take the wind into consideration, but don't make the wind the only only thing that you got going on i mean the wind is 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 the all determining thing you, mm-hmm. know, you can get away with movement you can get away with noise i learned that a lot especially 
with that slow play and Siri and some of the other things that we did during this elk hunt and the amount of movement that I was able to do uh, when I shot my bull, uh, because that bull was so focused on Troy or where he thought the other elk were, he, I had just enough cover that I was able to maneuver while standing up and, and get a decent shot on him. Um, anyway, yeah, the elk nut, um, he's, he's not full of it. I am absolutely convinced that, that the guy knows what he's talking about. Um, I'm, uh, I'm convinced that some of those noises that I would have never even remotely considered to use, uh, worked. And, um, I think that bull that came in on top of me was the bull from across the other side. And I think if, I think Chris would have had a shot at him, if we had a set up smartly, you know, getting a bull to come and expose himself into a, into a meadow, I realized after the fact was completely wrong. Chris should have set right. up on the other side you know, basically the direction we anticipated them coming from. And I should have been doing exactly what I was doing. He probably would have had a shot early on. And mm -hmm. so again, you know, I, uh, these mistakes that I make, um, as long as I don't repeat them, um, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's a bunch of wolves or hunting pressure up in that area you're at? And just from the sounds of it, these bulls being super, super quiet, maybe not making noise until they hear you in the dark hiking, breaking branches. Um, yeah, it's, so this it sounds to me like they're very, very timid. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, this year, I hunted a different area. Uh, Troy is a is a firefighter paramedic um, with the city that I work with, and for the years, I've been picking his brain about hunting. And um, he said, "Ah, we'll get you an elk." And uh, I'll have to tell you that story if we have time. But um, that the most incredible piece to the the story I provided you guys that that got me on your podcast was was how that all worked out but anyway yes the where where i'm used to hunting uh when i hunted uh 14 15 16 and 17 um wolf sign everywhere um i come across bears constantly i had a couple of close encounters with bears that i i don't want to ever have again um and uh you know grizzly poop is very obvious uh, you're used to seeing black bear poop. When you see grizzly poop, it's like, yeah, that almost looks like an elephant. Um, it was so huge. And uh, seeing, you know, cutting grizzly bear tracks in the snow. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm yet to hear wolves uh, in the backcountry. Um, no, I know they're there because I never yeah. hear coyotes. You know, I'd, I'd heard, I don't know if it's true, but I'd heard where if you're not hearing coyotes. It's because they're not, it's not because they're not there. It's because they're not wanting to become someone's food. And there's a bigger predator potentially in there. Um, mm. I, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, it kind of makes sense. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. We're catching sign all the time. Um, I had a game camera up on a wallow uh, in one of these areas that we were hunting uh, that actually had phone service. So I bought one of those modems mm -hmm. and um, put it on there. And I got a picture of a wolf uh, running, through, um, running through the middle of the wallow. Um, that would have been for 17. Uh, not a very big one by himself, but uh, definitely didn't look like a coyote. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the hunting pressure, you know, and then you also get this. Um, I know that we are, um, you know, there aren't a ton of hunters out there and there aren't as near as many bow hunters, but you still get hunting pressure uh, in, in all these areas. And fortunately, this year we were in a spot where uh, most of the hunters were headed in a different direction. 
Um, and I think it was because of the access, uh, the area we were hunting this year, you know, there's no motorized access. There's no, there's no way to get in there except to walk. And, uh, and that actually creates a lot of opportunity. The farther you get back in from those roads, or sometimes you find those pockets, you know, where the elk can be safe and, and aren't bothered. Um, that's huge. And trying not to blow them out of there once you find them is, is the next thing. You mentioned, uh, you know, got to fill a tag this year. And I know you had mentioned to me it happened, you know, shortly into the hunt this year. Uh, what's the story? I'd, I'm so excited to hear about how it went down for you more specifically and what it was like really to, to tag that first elk for you. Still, it's surreal. Um, I, you know, I won't be able to do in my mind, in my mind's eye, I'm not going to be able to do this story justice, but I'll do my best. Um, so Troy is the firefighter paramedic. He invited us to hunt with him. He had a, uh, a great dude. Um, captain couches is what I call him, but he's, um, he was a firefighter that, 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 uh, got injured and was hunting with Troy for many years. And so for the last few years, Troy hasn't had a hunting partner. So he invited Chris and I to come with him. Uh, to an area that he's familiar with from growing up and we get there. Well, Troy gets there ahead of us and um, there's actually a, I'm going to tell the whole story. We'll try and get this as quick as we can. Um, I get there on a Tuesday, which is September 5th and I get there about 10 AM and Troy's excited. He's like, man, I had bulls all around me this morning, right out of camp. Um, I really could have used you because I, I couldn't get, you know, the bulls were hanging up and I couldn't do it by myself. I needed somebody, you know, I needed a caller basically. And so he was excited. He goes, Hey, we're going to go try an area up the road here. We're going to drop an ATV and then we're going to drive up and around and we're going to kind of do a, a, it was probably end up being like three or four or five mile through hike, um, in some ground that he's never been in before. And, uh, we start off, we set everything up. We start on this Ridge. Uh, we start on the East side of this, this mountaintop and we bushwhack in, which, um, the area we're hunting this year is not near as steep and deep and dark as what I'm used to. And, uh, when I looked at it on Google earth, I'm like, Oh man, Troy, are you serious? This is going to be a good elk hunting area. I was kind of questioning him a little bit and he goes, trust me, <laughs> it doesn't look as good on, on Google earth as it does in person. So we bushwhack in, we cut this great trail, uh, it basically followed the ridge line, and it almost looked like a single track motorcycle trail that had been used so much. So that, that had some promise to it. We follow this trail, get to a point where we're going to take a break and eat some food. And Troy's like, hey, always knock an arrow um, when you sit down to do this because we'll play with our calls and eat some food, and you never know what's going to come in. Um, so we do that. And his first bugle, uh, we get an answer. Um, and, and then now I know that the, the elk was probably bedded because of the way that the sound was Troy's like, Oh, he's bedded probably right over there. And, uh, you know, a great learning experience for me to have a seasoned veteran, you know, mentoring me, which was phenomenal. Um, we did our best to call him to us and he wasn't having anything of it, but he kept answering. So we put our gear back on and we basically tried to sneak in on him, um, which he was on a South facing slope. And the temperatures were in the seventies this day. And, uh, we had no other elk sign that we cut fresh elk sign going into him, but we snuck in as close as we thought we could. And then we bugled and then he was, he had moved, but he had answered us. And then we did the same thing. We kind of went over the next Ridge, trying to sneak up on him again and, and get into his wheelhouse and, and, you know, kind of make him angry by uh, proximity or something. And same thing again, we basically kept pushing him, you know, Ridge to Ridge to Ridge, but he kept answering us. And Troy looks at me and he goes, yeah, this isn't going to work. And I totally agreed with him. He goes, let's, um, if we have enough time, we'll get through this hunt 
we'll go when we go grab the ATV and go back up to pick up the one we dropped off at the at the trailhead, the first where we hiked in. He goes, we can maneuver and maybe come in on the other side of that ridge top and see if we can get right on top of him. Because that you know, looking at the maps, you could see where we kind of think he was, where we left him, and how we could get there from the other side of the mountain. So we finish our through hike, um, hop on the ATV and get back up to the other one. And we move and we have about a half mile hike um, from where we jumped off the second time around the west side of this mountaintop. And we kind of come in and we're looking at the maps and we're, we kind of come out of this old growth, kind of open old growth area into a, it's almost like an overlook that was open and exposed. So it had a bunch of vegetation that happens, you know, obviously when sunlight hits, you know, an area different than the forest and, it's kind of thick and we get to an edge where there's a drop off and you can see a good distance and Troy lets off, cracks off a big old bugle and no, no sooner than that bugle comes off his lips, we hear popping and cracking from upwind from us. Did I say that right? So yeah, the elk's coming in with the wind behind him. Um, Wind's perfect for us. And Troy and I look at each other like, is that, yep, it definitely is. And he's, he's close. He's coming in hard and it's loud. Uh, again, like, uh, Steve, no noise. He didn't say, didn't bugle at us. Didn't say nothing. And Troy quickly took off downwind trying to draw the bull through, um, bugling as he went. Um, I talked to him yesterday about what happened with him trying to, you know, make sure I had the story right for y'all. And, uh, he took off the opposite direction, trying to draw the bull through me and in doing so ends up kind of falling or, or rolling downhill and sliding on his rear end, trying to get behind a bush. And this elk, so at 620 um, is about, um, I got there at 10. We started hunting, the, you know, we got into hunting position probably by noon. And then we hiked through, found that elk, put him to, you know, laid him, left him there, came back around. And we're now at like 620 in the evening. So I'm six hours and 20 minutes roughly into my first hunt of the 2018 season. Um and this bull's coming in and I, I get my, um, I have my bow on my pack. And so I have a quick release set up and, you know, um, pop it off, knock an arrow. And about the time I knock the arrow, I look up and he's at 40 yards coming in on an arc because he can't come straight to through me because of all the vegetation, which also means I don't have a shot. Uh, but he's coming on an arc, uh, from my right to my left with the wind at his butt. And he comes in so fast that I basically, first time I see him, I know this is going to happen fast. And I had enough wits about me. One of the first things I did right in the last five years was, uh, I drew my bow right away. I just drew, cause I knew I could hold as long as I needed to, as quick as this was going to happen. How, did, comes you, on this, how did you know you could hold? Um, just practice. You know, I, I shoot, um, I don't shoot as much as most people, but I shoot enough and, um, um, you know, with fitness, I, I still CrossFit a lot and, um, I, uh, I just knew I could hold for, it was happening so fast that even if I, you know, I could probably hold for 30 to 45, maybe to a minute if I needed to, but I just knew it, I had to hold. Otherwise the the draw cycle may spook him if he gets in too close. Yeah. Um, That's a critical, like guys don't understand, you know, that there's one of those hunting situation things that, you know, that makes the difference between killing something or not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you most know, and guys probably have never drawn their bow back and held it for longer than 20 seconds to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. When you yeah. get the shakes and, and yeah. that kind of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's uh-huh. a very good that's point. Cool. 
so I drew and I've, I've got this big bush that's a big kind of like a, I can't even remember what kind of tree it is, but it's a bushy leafy style tree. It's not a, a conifer. And, you know, I'm trying to maneuver depending on where he may stop because he's got his head up and he's looking hard at where, where this, he thinks this other bowl is. And, um, Troy can see him coming at one point and realizes, so he comes in from my right to left and ends up stopping at essentially uh, my nine o'clock where I face him, obviously. Um, and I, I don't even know what his range is. Um, I, you know, this happened so fast. He literally was on top of us, uh, in seconds. And so I had no time to range. I literally had time to get my bow off my pack, knock an arrow, draw, and hold. And then now I'm trying to move without moving too much so that I can develop, you know, a shooting lane for myself. And he stops perfectly at, I don't know what distance, uh, at the time. And he's looking downhill, basically looking right over Troy and Troy's 15 feet from him tucked under this bush. And he's looking right where this elk should be. And he's perfectly broad. Well, almost perfectly broad set. It turned out later that he wasn't, he was a little bit quartering too, but all I saw is the big sweet spot shooting area. And, and right before I'm letting the, I'm going to pull the trigger on the arrow. Um, I'm seeing limbs and he's standing. Basically there's two like, like tiny little, um, pine trees, white pine trees that are probably, you know, a couple inches in diameter and their limbs are poking towards each other. And he's standing directly between those two. And I'm trying to find, uh, making sure I'm not gonna, um, you know, hit an arrow off a, a limb and skip it somewhere. Cause that's the last thing I'd want to do is, is, is wound an animal. And I get to a point where I can't see, I can't see the limbs themselves, but I know that he's so close to that tree that if I do actually nick a limb, it's not going to change the trajectory of the arrow too much. I mean, it's crazy that this is all going through my head in like split seconds. And I finally just let the arrow go. Great sound. Um, I actually, um, I've got the shakes right now. I'm reliving this. Um, <laughs> the, I actually didn't know his distance. So I just took my top two pins and put them on the, on the sweet spot, um, and let it go. And good sound. He spins and takes off on an arc going uphill and out of sight. And, uh, he probably gets a couple of seconds away and I start, I hear this giant, like gas noise, like a fart, like a giant horse fart. And <laughs> I I'm like, I I'm like, what the heck was that? And I'd heard that I've heard these before. I, you know, it's it basically, it was a sucking chest wound. Um, and I never, I've never heard anybody describe it in hunting scenarios. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody even make the comment that I heard that, you know, I heard a sucking chest wound on a, on a big game animal and I heard it and I knew exactly what it was. Cause I've seen them before on humans, you know, with my, my line of work, I've seen bullet wounds to chest and, and the noises they make, but it, this one was just such magnified because of the size of the body, um, makes this huge noise. And I'm like, Oh, I think that mean, it means I got lung. I was, I was worried that because I didn't know the distance that I may have shot too high, you know, all the things that start going through your head as soon as you let the arrow go. And he spins, goes up. I hear that noise. He's out of sight. I can't see him. And then I'm, I'm hearing him move still. And then I hear him stop. And then I hear him fall. And, you know, again, this is my first rodeo. This legitimately is my first rodeo doing this, you know, arrowing an elk. Um, it's the second time I've, I've shot an, an arrow at a big game animal. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm doubting myself, but at the same time, the evidence is suggesting I did pretty good. Um, I hear him tip over and then it kind of goes quiet. And, um, where he tipped over, isn't very far. 
in fact, yesterday, um, I got on my Onyx maps and kind of ranged. I had it marked from where I shot the the bull in case we had to find a blood trail. I, I marked my uh, my map right away uh, before I, I even moved. And then um, where we found him, I, I marked as well. And it was 152 feet from where I arrowed him to where, I, where he fell. And um, he, so Troy and I meet up and he's like, um, he asked me the size. He goes, was that, you know, I saw, I saw horns. Was it a spike or was it bigger? And I go, I only saw, I, it may have been a four point. I didn't have time to count. I just saw antlers. And, um, he goes, well, let's give it about an hour or so. And I'm like, Oh dude, I heard him fall over here. And I'm, but I, I'm trying to be respectful because Troy is the seasoned hunter and I do know he's correct. You know, let's give it some time. Let's not push it. Cause a pushed elk will go forever. Um, you know, but I'm so, I'm anxious. I want to know. And so I convinced him to let's sneak up. It's only like, you know, 20 yards or so. Let's sneak up and see if we can find my arrow. Um, and so we did, we find my arrow and it's laid perfectly on the branches of two trees directly behind where it would, I mean, we're looking on the ground for the arrow typically, and we're not finding it. And so then I kind of backtrack the, do some geometry, I guess is the best way to say it, figuring out where I was and where the arrow should have gone. Um, and I see it sitting in this tree and I got a picture of it where it's like almost somebody laid it on two limbs and just set it there. Um, had good blood and, um, Troy's in now is like, yeah, it's pretty good. Let's okay. Let's follow the blood a little bit here. And we get to the edge of the, the, the brushiness that is, you know, this area that we would bugled in and, and, uh, starting to hit the old growth. And he's like, yeah, let's give it some time. And I'm just, I'm just anxious. I'm like, Hey, let's just sneak up as quiet as we can. I bet you if he truly tipped over, we're going to see him if we get to the edge of these bushes. And I think my persistence paid off and I pushed uh, Troy to the edge there and without even glassing, we could see his horns. And so we walk up on him and, and <laughs> I remember the first thing I, I thought of, it wasn't like, Oh man, Hey, I did it or success and high fives and that kind of stuff. But it was almost like, that's not my elk. You know, I didn't say it out loud, but I'm thinking to myself, that's not my elk. And the interesting thing was, is the elk had come in showing me his left side, which looked like an elk. Well, he tipped on his left side and his right side, he had clearly been laying in some black mud of some sort on, on that side of his body. So when I get to the elk, he, he doesn't look like an elk. He looks like a, he's the color of a bear almost. And, uh, it, you know, you, it's funny that I focused on that, but, um, I had to tell myself, Oh, that's definitely my elk. And I ended up shooting him. Um, <laughs> it was just surreal. Uh, I ended up shooting him quartering two. So the arrow went in, in a, in a good location, um, on his left side, but it exited almost out back, like his back rib or his last rib, um, on the, on his right side. And so he had the big foaming, um, you know, lung looking, um, blood that was gathered there and bubbling and everything. And, and that's the, the area where that giant noise I heard came from. Was it, uh, overwhelming to actually be standing there and go, that is a big animal and now what? <laughs> oh man. So yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'd watched, I knew that if I was to kill an animal myself, I was going to, I was going to do the, uh, the gutless method. There's no question but I've never done it. You know, watching videos is one thing on the internet and the bro guys do a great job explaining it that, and uh, trying to think of some of the other guys that, that I've watched, but I've seen it enough that I was going to tackle it one way or another and um, having Troy there made it quick. I mean, we had that thing. I learned, you know, the tenderloins is definitely the, the most uh, challenging and de delicate issue, but the rest of it, um, Troy told me what to do. And, and we had that thing quartered and hung 
and we're on our way out in two hours. Um, and we hung it uh, because I, I didn't realize at the time, I'm pretty sure Troy was thinking, hey, I was in bowls all, all this morning. If we try and pack this thing out tonight, we're going to get in really late. Um, I'd rather get some sleep, get up early, go hunt the, the other elk that we know of, uh, and then come back. He didn't say it, but I think that's probably what he was planning. But he says, we're going to hang it. It's going to be plenty cold tonight. And then we'll come back tomorrow and get it. So um, that's exactly what we did. Got back, uh, had a celebra- celebratory adult beverage. Um, we got up the next morning super early when we were in bowls. Um, one particular that that we, uh, now I'm the caller. So this is my first experience, you know, being responsible for bringing an animal to someone else, you know, solely. And it's just Troy and I, because Chris hasn't shown up yet. And uh, we had a great encounter. I uh, learned very, very quickly that that if, if the elk are going to bed and you don't put yourself in a position that entices them to deviate from going to bed, they're not, they're not changing. And, uh, we had that experience a couple times where, you know, if you can get ahead of them or just to the side of them enough that they'll, they'll engage you, that's great. But if you don't get close enough to the path that they're, they've got in their mind's eye and where they're headed, you're not going to have a chance at them. Yeah. Such an important point. Oh, it's just, you know, just that, um, we had a great encounter with him. I really ticked him off. Um, um, but he was not willing to close the distance. And it's almost like, you know, back to the elk nut and, and some of these conversations about emotion. I could hear the emotion in that elk's voice and trying to get him to come into Troy's uh, range and hearing how ticked off he was and the, the noises and grunts and different things that he was doing to try and say, hey, I've come. I've come this far. You come to me the rest of the way is kind of how I saw it. And we didn't, we couldn't close the gap uh, because we would have to expose ourselves and, and uh, it just didn't work out well. So fortunately though, we put that belt, we put that bowl to bed. Um, we put him to bed. We went back to camp. We went back up in the mountains and grabbed my meat. And by the time we got back to camp, Chris had shown up and Chris is a night shifter. He's a police officer as well. And he's a night shifter He'd worked that la- that night before, so he tried to get a couple hours of sleep, and then he had like a two and a half hour drive to us. He shows up into camp, and we're like, "Get your stuff on, let's go!" And so he didn't even have time to unpack. He had literally just put his stuff on, and we went to go find this bull. We end up uh, kind of the same type of scenario with this this second bull. Um, Troy kind of we figured out that we put him to bed in this one spot, but there's several fingers of drainages that all come together. So let's go hit this tall one and we'll see who, if, if we can pinpoint where he's at. We get in a few miles into this area and um, we're, we get to a saddle basically right before this ridge that we can see is kind of, it opens up a little bit and we're trying to make a game plan. Hey, we're going to get up here. We're going to set up and we'll bugle and see if he answers that kind of stuff. And while we're making this game plan, an elk bugles at us. Um, and it's, and it's coming from the direction that we were going to, you know, intended to go anyway. Um, so we set up, I stay in the saddle and that's another thing I learned, um, this year was, you know, before you're set up when you're the caller, your setup is key because if an elk, you know, I, I, I was told, and I've listened to you guys, if an elk can see where the noise is coming from and doesn't see another elk, it's not going to come in, you know, but if you can create, if there's a barrier or some sort of, um, um, you know, some sort of geographic type barrier that prevents the elk from like, oh, well, I've got to move around to be able to see where that elk's calling from. So if you can put those kind of barriers between you and the elk, it'll draw them in a little bit farther, I'm convinced. 
Um, so we, that, that being said, I stayed below in this saddle because if, if I'd have been up on the top and even behind some trees, the elk would have assumed you could see me. So I'm down in the saddle. I'm calling. I can actually hear him coming. Um, and, and the rest of the story is a lot from Troy and Chris's perspective. They split up and kind of, uh, eld out on this, uh, this ridge. So they're on opposite sides of the ridge. Wind's, wind's good. Wind's coming to, towards us from, from the elk. So, uh, this elk apparently comes in to about 50 yards and then stops and starts feeding, you know, he, he bugled and was coming in hard. I could hear him. And then I didn't hear anything and I didn't hear anything and I didn't hear anything. And the whole time this is going on. I had another elk sneak in from, from my downwind side and it caught my wind and took off. And I'm like, Oh, I, I, you know, obviously get startled. Uh, but I look and see, you know, tines and, and a butt running away from me. I'm like, Oh, another, another learning thing there. Always have the wind, right? I should have had Chris back with me. Hindsight's always 2020. But what happens is, is Chris has got a 42 yard shot. If the, if the elk will clear a, a bush and Troy's got a 52 yard shot and, um, Troy ends up shooting him uh, a little bit quartering two, and he ran about 120 yards and died. And uh, we packed that elk out that night. And a funny story for Chris, um, we decided we we're going to take that elk out in one trip because we got about two and a half, three miles uh, back to the trailhead, and we didn't want to have to come back in. Um, and it was, I think we, it was just before dark that we started quartering this thing up and. We get everything loaded up and we're headed out this last uphill, which is a pretty significant uphill, 30 degrees or better. And, uh, I had, I didn't know this, but Chris hadn't eaten all day. He had gotten a coffee at Starbucks and that was pretty much it. And when we told him to get his stuff and go, he was planning on making a sandwich, but we didn't let him. So he's completely on fumes and we get to the bottom of this hill and we're, we're, you know, we're all hundred plus pounds in our packs. I've got a, a rear and front quarter in mine and Troy's the same. And anyway, um, get to the bottom of this hill and he's like, Hey, Trev, I don't feel good. And, you know, Chris never complains. He, I've never heard him complain. He's one of the toughest guys I know. And I look at him and I'm like, Hey man, you're fine. No big deal. You know, I, I took it kind of just, you know, trying to motivate him a little bit. And then I look back at him and he's almost glowing. He's so white and it's dark and we got headlamps on and, he's like, dude, I don't feel good. I said, okay, I'm starting to now motivate. I'm like, Hey, let's just do five steps at a time. Um, and we'll just get up this hill and see, and and we'll reassess once we get to the top of this hill. And so I take, I count five steps, but I take seven. And after about halfway up the hill, he's like, knock it off, dude, you're not counting five. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and yeah, and I'm still, I'm still just trying to get him to the top of this hill. Cause I don't know, he, like I said, he never complains and now I'm actually worried something's wrong. I didn't know that it was just that he's out of gas and, and, uh, things aren't good. So we get to the top of this hill. And as soon as, as soon as he crests the top of this hill, he goes down to his hands and knees and starts dry heaving. And we get the pack off of him and he's puking for a couple of minutes and finally gets a little bit of bile up or something. And then he goes, he kind of rolls over to his pack and he rinses his mouth out. And kind of spits a couple of times, takes a couple of drinks, and he stands back up and he goes, all right, let's go. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. And I, in the story I told you guys, that's the best puking rally I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he put his pack back on, and, and we finished. It was probably another three-quarters of a mile back to the trailhead. And, uh, again, we got back to camp and had a celebratory adult beverage and told some good stories. And... um 
man. And, you know, two bowls in 24 hours. I mean, legitimately yeah. it was 24 hours and, and, uh, you know, if that would have happened, I don't, I've, I've heard some of your guys' stories or some of the podcasts. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily, um, the hunt back countries, but where people have success their first year and man, you know, that you, you, you make your own luck. I mean, there's no question about that, but you know, wisdom and, and preparation and all those things, uh, play into a lot, how, how your luck turns out. Um, I, I couldn't have imagined how much, if you'd have told me coming into to elk hunting that it was going to take me five years to, to notch my first tag, I'd have said, eh, I don't know if I'm going to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm absolutely hooked and, um, the challenge now will be, you know, getting through the busiest time of my family's kid, well, the kids, uh, upcoming years of, of high school and end of middle school and still finding the time to get into the back country without uh, getting a divorce. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, just as a, as a final parting word and you kind of already addressed it there. Um, but I'm just curious from your experience, what we'd have to say to somebody who maybe is two, three, four, five years into their elk hunting journey, hasn't filled the tag. Maybe they're kind of starting to question their sanity or kind of doubt, or they're, they're tired of the bow hiker jokes. As you said, you know, guys were giving you things like that. What would you say to them just to wrap up? Well, there's a reason why the success, uh, the, the, the hunter success percentages are so low. I mean, I think the unit that we were in was under 10%. And, um, that's because it's not easy. And, um, uh, I think, Somebody said, and you guys are going to have to help me with this, but you know, the easy day was yesterday or there's no easy day or, um, but it's, it, it's a progression. And, and as long as you're, you're making progress, the biggest thing is, is keeping your wits about you and being positive because, um, quitting's not an option. It, at least it isn't for me. And I think a lot of, uh, of other elk hunters, especially folks that are listening to your podcast are, are wanting to get better and are interested truly in how to, you know, be a, a successful hunter, but it's not about the success. I, I don't think for most of us, I think it's more about, for me, it's, it's being in the backcountry. If I never filled a tag, uh, I'd be perfectly happy being a bow hiker. But, um, I really think that positive attitude, be a student of the game and then be aggressive. I think that's the number one thing that I would pass along from my experience is that my lack of aggression, uh, in elk hunting, uh, is probably the reason why I, it took me five years. Um, but if it doesn't take me, if it takes me another five years to be successful again, I really don't care. Um, it, the camaraderie, you know, this, it's almost like pushing the reset button for, for me. Uh, when I go into the back country, um, even just on a scouting trip, you know, and then, and it's just, it's, it's a resetting it, it. You push that reset button and I'm good again for months. Um, it's just healthy. It's, it's where we should be. I think all, most of us would want to live. You know, I have, I have, I have, uh, daydreams of living in a cabin in the woods that's completely off grid and, you know, animals everywhere. And, you know, it's, it's, it's financially not possible for me, but it's at least, um, it's a, it's a dream and a goal someday to, you know, spend more time in the back country than I do at work. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. thank you for the time, man. Sharing the story, the journey, being open about, you know, the struggles through the years. It's so important to, you know, to tell the whole story and really it's, it's elk hunting 
as reality that there's ups and downs and it can be a long process for sure. So thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah, my pleasure. And, and, uh, you know, I think one, one last parting thought is, is also be a mentor to someone that was, I would love to be able to mentor someone like people have done for me. Um, so that would be the next, you know, the other thing besides aggression and, and positive attitude is, is, you know, you can control someone else's success by being a mentor find, you know, it might, it might be my daughter, but, uh, I think as hunters, we owe it to others doing this to, you know, to create progress for everybody. Um, I think hunter numbers are declining. We, we all know that. And so, um, I'd love to be a mentor for someone. I don't know that I have the skill set yet, but someday I will. Well, that's a wrap. Don't forget guys, go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. You can look for the giveaway link there. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, anything of the like, email us, podcast at exomountaingear.com. We will catch you next week.